Hello, my name is Daniel Fisher, a Rich Nation Manager at Abatable, and this is Developing Carbon Stories, a podcast about the project developers creating the most innovative and impactful carbon projects in the world. Developing Carbon Stories is a podcast by Abatable, an intelligence and procurement platform for the voluntary carbon market. In each episode, we speak with an entrepreneur from a different part of the carbon ecosystem and talk about their journey so far and how they are contributing to the fight against climate change. In series three of the podcast, we're taking a focused look at the importance of nature-based solutions and their special ability to combat climate change while providing a host of additional co-benefits. In this episode, we speak with Lily Rodriguez, a Peruvian herpetologist and biodiversity expert, and one of the founders of Peru's Centre for the Conservation, Research and Management of Natural Areas, or CIMA for short. Lily and I discuss how she helped establish Peru's Cordillera Azul National Park and how REDPLUS provides the funding to help prevent deforestation within the park and its buffer zone. We also explore Lily's passion for biodiversity and forest conservation, which was hugely influenced by a special encounter with an indigenous group deep in the forest. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Lily. It's uh, great to have you have you here. Um, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you again um, since we last met in, in Lima. And so before we dive into the questions and the conversation that we're about to have, uh, it'd be awesome if you could just maybe quickly introduce yourself to, to the people listening, uh, who you are, where you are calling from, and uh, yeah, just anything else you, you want to say before we dive in. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Lily Rodriguez. I'm one of the founders of the Center for Conservation, Research, Management of Natural Areas, CIMA Cordillera Sul. I'm a biologist by training. I'm an ecologist uh, from the University of Paris. Um, I have been working in conservation in Peru since '79. So it's a long, long time in the field, but also a little bit in the policies. Uh, I have been working a lot on the biodiversity convention and then the management of the national parks or protected areas in Peru. I was in the creation of the, of the law we have in Peru for protected areas and the national plan for protected areas. And after that, I start this adventure with Cordillera Sur. Uh, quite a, quite a history and, and a way to get to, to CIMA, to Cordillera Sur. And so I guess let's go back again. And I'd love to know sort of what really got you interested in ecology, uh, in being a biologist uh, in, in the first place. before. You went to university um, and before SEMA. I don't know. My my father was from the rainforest. My father was from Lamas. So I guess, although we never visited the, the rainforest, I had been listening to all of these stories and I had been inspired also by this lady, a British, I can't remember the name, but she's the one who was um, very famous studying chimpanzees in Africa. Dr. Jane Goodall, I believe, is yes, the, yes. the doctor. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. Um, and that inspired me to, 
to go into biology. And then um, throughout your your research and and your work, you then obviously um, help set up set up SEMA. Uh, what what made you uh, what made you do this? Uh, why did you want to to found this association? Well, it was uh, to to actually be able to run this national park and to be able to implement the, the, the new law we have been working for years on preparation. So it was to implement what we have been talking about with different groups, anthropologists, sociologists, uh, managers, and all the people working in protected areas for many years. And so it was very exciting to have this opportunity to start from zero to implement this new set of rules for protected areas. Yeah. No, okay, fantastic. And then uh, I guess it's very complex and uh, a, long, a lot of years have gone into working on it. But can you quickly explain this, this law that you, you helped um, to create and then obviously what brought around SEMA? That that uh, so this was a GIZ pro project with the government of Peru to establish the national plan for protected areas for the whole system of protected areas, and then this was converted into the national law for protected areas. So this includes topics as how you select the areas. So there was a like a pre-selection of where to establish new and how to accommodate those existing already, what um, the work will be with people living inside protected areas, how to manage natural resources, uh, how to work on the buffer zone, uh, how to do research, how to do tourism and all other activities that are allowed inside protected areas and how to report on the management that was the and that's that's all in the in the law and this was made with different groups of specialists that we had to discuss the different topics okay uh, fascinating it's uh, hard work i suspect <laughs> yeah and so also, love- also let me say one more thing because we were also discussing how to fund protected areas. And um, it was uh, at the time when the national, uh, the Profonampe was established a little bit later than that, but that was part of the discussion also, how to manage protected areas. And so there was was no this uh, red idea yet, but also at, at the moment, the discussion was on how the private sector or other sectors could uh, participate in the implementation of protected areas because in the 90s uh, and up until the 2000s, um, there was not enough uh, funding from the government for protected areas and there was Mm -hmm. no national office for protected areas not national ministry for environment yes and i think um you know in in a, in a few minutes time we'll come into the voluntary carbon market and we will talk about how 
how that has um, had an effect on, on projects and, and on, on a wider conservation level. But before we go to that, uh, I would love to discuss Cordero Azul National Park in, in a bit more detail. Um, and of course, you've been very close to it. You've been in the park um, for, for many years now and, and probably know it best than anyone else. So could you please just, I guess, explain the park, describe the park, um, and I know that, you know, I'm, I'm here in London um, and for other people in sort of especially Europe, it is a, it is a million miles away, uh, both geographically, but also we can't, we can't conceptualize it uh, very well. So I'd love it if you could try and, you know, bring it to life, uh, tell the people listening, you know, what it's really like in the National Park in, in, the, in the Red Plus project. And, and of course, what it is doing as well. Is like a branch of the main cordillera of the Andes. So it's not very high. It goes up to 2,600 meters. It's all covered with forest. Um, it's about 300 kilometers long and about 90 kilometers wide. So it's quite big. It's one and a half million hectares. And it's a lot of mountains. Very interesting geography because this was under the sea 35 or 40 million years ago. So the geology is uh, very exciting. And, um, and so we have different types of formations. Um, the northern, we call the condorcito because it has the shape of a little condor with a tail, um, chest, and the head, and the head is the oldest part of the park. So you can see like little tepuis as a formation, and then big, big um, Divian formations, we call these are upset um, plateau that have been racing. And and so there is a lot of, of or there are some mines of salt, but there is also a lot of fossils, sea fossils. That's more or less the, the context of, of course, this is covered by Amazonian fauna and flora, about 3,000 species of trees, um, many amphibians, reptile, over 600 or maybe now 700 species of birds and about 12 uh, monkeys it's amazing and uh of course the the park is trying to protect this this region uh correct so how 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 is it implementing uh to do that like what are the the key factors that are required uh to basically be successful in protecting this as you just mentioned this unique uh ecosystem when when the park was established it is uh stated the objectives of the park and it's kind of interesting to know that this is one of the very few maybe the only park in peru that has not only in the objectives of establishment not only the biodiversity part but also the it includes the ben, the good management of resources around the park. So this includes the people living outside the park in the buffer zone. And to establish a park from zero ground, you have to 
um, think about what will be the best way is to conserve the integrity of the park. And to do that, we have been setting up the limits of the park and around the park, 22 park guard stations. And then with the people living around the park, we recognize all the entrances they had that was made in 2002, the first, uh, at the very beginning of the management. And in every uh, trail, we established some signs so that people know where the park is. And these signs were made by the local people and they carried the signs and they established the signs. So it was, it was made in a very uh, participatory way. And this is like the bottom line for all the management of the park. So we have been working since then with most of the little towns that are around the park in the Wayaga Valley and in the Ucayali Valley too. Okay, amazing. And you touched on it just then, but I, but uh, as you know, this is a very complex situation. But um, can you just really quickly explain what the buffer zone is, just for those who might not uh, understand? <laughs> well, the buffer zone is the zone around the park. In this case, in Peru, the buffer zone has an official recognition that must um, that says that if you have a project in the buffer zone, if you, meaning government, has, uh, you know, the regional or local governments have a big project, uh, like uh, for infrastructure, agriculture, or whatever, they have to request the permission of the park authority. So, CERNAM, not, not us. We have a contract with the government to run the park, but... Uh, in the buffer zone, all the projects like roads and projects on agriculture are asked, have to request a permit from the government and, or the agreement that it is okay and will then damage the park. So in the national, in the buffer zone, which is 2.3 million hectares, so it's about double the zone. The, the zone of the park, mm. there is a lot of, of space, but a lot of people too. Yeah. And um, just staying, I say staying uh, in, in, in the park, what have you seen um, currently and previously as the main challenges that you've, you've faced um, when, well, in the last sort of 20 years of, of this work at this, at this, at this park? Well, the most challenging thing is that people keep coming. There is a lot of migra migration from other regions, especially from the northern part of Peru, migration from the highlands to the lowlands. That means that people that is arri are arriving to the area don't know very well the resources, how to use them, and they come with their own system agricultural systems may, mainly. In When we started the park, this area in the Guayaga Valley, which is the more challenging one, had there is a, a, a road all the way 
down along the park. There mm. is also, there was also the Shining Path and another terrorist group. Yeah. And there was also the coca, illegal coca plantations. Mm. And so that was very challenging. Yeah. We started working with the people closest to the park. We, we established the, what we call the critical areas where we have to work harder to stop deforestation that it didn't go inside the park. And then we had to start working on how to improve the quality of life of people on how to uh, stabilize the ag- agricultural frontier. So that, okay. that has been the more challenging and it remains... Um, there has been a lot of work by the government to stop uh, the terrorists. It mm-hmm. was finished in 2012, more or less. And also, mm-hmm. there has been uh, a lot of work to replace coca by cocoa plantations or coffee and other crops. And so that uh, we, we, we think we have also contributed because we were funded by USAID. And so we also contributed to the pacification, peaceful, in mm-hmm. the area. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think that takes me quite nicely to the next question. Uh, what do you think is the main achievement um, of the park or the, the greatest successes it's had, in your opinion? I think that up until very recently, there was no problem with the park. Mm-hmm. And in general, still there is no problem with the park. So that's one of the main achievements of the management of Cordillera Sul National Park that most people are uh, in agreement with the establishment, the existence of the park, and um, the area was not uh, so much used by local people. So that's one of the reasons. And the, the other thing is that uh, so far there has been almost no deforestation inside the park. I will say mm-hmm. those are the main uh, yeah. achievements. And we are working hard to with the regional governments and the local governments, and especially with the, all the local communities around the park. Mm-hmm. No, we cannot work about the... the with all the communities, because there are way too many, so we yeah. work that with those that are closest to the park. Okay. That is the problem, because it has doubled the number in the 20 mm. years of management. And so we, we start with a set of communities to work with about 50. Now we are in about 120, but the communities are now in total, more than 250 or something like oh. that. Gosh, so you got your, got your hands full. <laughs> and um, so I'm going to, I'd love to now talk about sort of the funding and the voluntary carbon market, but I, I'm going to have to ask because uh, when I was there last time uh, in, in Lima and visiting some projects, I unfortunately, I couldn't come and see Codro Azul, but I could see it from the distance. So uh, that's as far as I've got so far. But when I met you, you said you have a very specific favorite 
point in the park. Is that right? It's a, one of the checkpoints. Well, that's Chambirillo, which mm -hmm. is one of the accessible areas by foot. Okay. <laughs> where, where you can go and there is a view all the way down the Amazon. Yeah. This is amazing. Quite amazing place. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I will uh, I'll try I and go there one day. Next time you come. Thank you very much. I'll take you up on the offer. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, a minute ago that, uh, you know, in the 1990s, the funding from the government and the funding that the park was able to receive really wasn't, wasn't enough. And so you had to look towards the private sector and you know, try and find different ways of, of have this funding. And so, you know, I guess not uh, not then, but a little bit later on, the Red Plus project was was created um, and the voluntary carbon market somewhat helped with that funding. And so, you know, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on the voluntary carbon market and how it has impacted Cordillera Azul and how you think that it will continue to to affect it, uh, both, you know, positives, negatives, everything, you know, it's just a, it's a big topic. Um, and, you know, you've, you've been in the center of it for, for nearly 20 years. Um, so, yeah, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on how, how the voluntary carbon market has played a role in Kudruzu. Yeah, well, when we made the agreement with the government to run the park in 2008, the official uh, contract we had, we we need to to design how we will um, get the financing for twenty years, and so at the moment it was the very beginning of red, and we made this uh, project thinking that there will be money from from a red project that there will be people and right at the beginning of the design of the project, there was already involvement of some oil companies on, mm. that were already willing to invest in, in the making of the, of the project. So since the beginning, we had this hope, but the, there was no certainty that people will buy the, the credits and this wasn't reality, so the project was finished in 2012. And then in 2014, we, we made a loan with Altilia that helped us for about four years. But the, the, the carbon market was very low at the moment, and the price mm. and everything. And it, it wasn't until 2019 when, when we could really do the big start the big sales of the of the uh, carbon credits and then we could uh, refund um, the the park and those are the funds we are using up to now mm. and also then then we we had a new big sell uh, with another oil company and then we have established a, like a trust fund for the park. So it's very important, the contribution. I know there is a lot of critics to the RED projects from the methodology, 
from the impact, from everything, every corner. However, I will say that we can ensure the conservation of Cordillera Azul National Park because we have been successful in in the red project and that that is important and, and can be seen in the documents that you have in Vera in the webpage but yeah. also we see that the government is quite pleased with that because the government is now trying to do the same with other protected areas in Peru so yeah. from that point of view or from the financial point of view, I think that it is a very successful um, project and it's a good strategy to to have this uh, uh, contribution from the private sector. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, yeah, you, you mentioned it. Um, uh, it was going to be something else I mentioned. The, the, negative, the negative criticism uh, media that has come in the last 18 months has been um, particularly targeted, right, uh, on Red Plus, and yes. and particularly damaging uh, towards Red Plus and, and the market. And I think, uh, from from my perspective and from where I'm sitting, it is incredibly uh, uh, difficult. You know, when you when you read these articles, uh, yes. and it's almost hurtful. And I'm you know, over here. And so I can only only imagine what it must be like. You know, if you've been working for for twenty years and you have created this incredible area, and not only that, you have the results to prove it. Um, you have the you know the the, the fauna, the flora, uh, the lack of deforestation. Um, and I, I uh, does that? How do you feel when when you see these articles? I mean, I'm sorry if that's a direct question, but yeah, what are your thoughts on them? Well, it's very painful for, for me personally for several reasons. One is that people don't know how much effort it is to run a national park. And it's not only us. It's also all the park guards, all the local people participating. And it's, it's like a very silent work we have been doing. That, that is one thing. It's not very easy, and um, people don't know about the benefits and the positive things of the project. People have heard only the negative part or the negative stories that are not necessarily true. Mm. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is that from the social point of view, you know, there has been a lot of... of uh, protest about uh, the project because the benefit sharing and people don't know that when we made the contract with the government and when we made this project it was made to run the park and have the sufficient money to pay them for the payroll of all the people for all the work that has to be made around the park this is not known and people don't think it and ask us where is the money and the money is in a trust fund and the money is being used in the national park and the money is in distributed according to the contract we had with the government that was signed in 2008 when nobody uh, was, had the certainty that there will be mm. the money 
Now that yeah. there is the money everyone wants to share, we are doing our best to, to share. And we have been sharing all the all the way since 2008. We have been sharing the money that comes mm. to us to run the park. But it's a different vision on how how you uh, how you measure benefits. And yeah. so that that's one part, the benefit sharing. But the other part is think that we have been working on a projection for 10 years. We have been using now this project, these projections for over 12 years. <laughs> this means that the, the way to calculate was not correct, probably. And now Vera is changing the methodology and using only mm -hmm. five years. Okay. But think that when we made the project back in 2008, it was a way to calculate. So it's it's sometimes something people very easily uh, can use some ideas to criticize what is mm. known today. But yeah. don't think about how was the context at the moment that the project was designed. So... There are yeah. different edges to the to the problem. And also, one more thing is that I have been working with indigenous people for years. For years, because I had an encounter with the first contact in, 2000, in 1985 in Manu National Park. That touched me enormously. Mm. That was, I mean, you, you have no idea what uh, an experience that could be. So to mm. me, person, it's very, very hard to listen to all the protests about indigenous people. Yeah. No, thank you. That's, uh, I think, I think that's very important for people to, to hear because, you know, for, for a few reasons, uh, yeah. because, you know, investors or corporates who are just coming into the market uh, they look at, you know, project types and they see red plus and uh, red plus is often seen as, you know, a one shoe fits all or, you know, just it's a methodology. But what is you need to be able to go and see and do due diligence to know that not one red project is the same. You know, each one is very unique. Each one has its own challenges. Each one has its own communities and each one has to be different to succeed. And I think that is that is the challenge when. Uh, people just see a, an ID number and they don't look a deeper and they see, you know, these are the trees, the actual people, uh, the actual lives that are, you know, one at stake, but also the people who are tirelessly working to, to actually try and run these, these, these operations. And so it's um, also, I think, uh, worth pointing out that, you know, we've been sort of banging the drum for many years now that places like Kodiluzul, uh, and your Red Plus project was was one of the first Red Plus projects, um, which yeah. which means you are one of the pioneers. Um, and and you've already said it a few times, but you took that risk to do this, um, and in doing so, you created you helped create the market that we have now. Um, and so it is not fair for you to be penalised on using the best scientific data that you had when you started the park. And so, um, you know, we will continue to <laughs> beat that drum because I think it's, uh, you know, it's important that people realize that, yeah, this, the work that goes into this.
yeah, for us, it's very interesting. It's always nice, and we are ready to take every challenge. Some of the new challenges are like uh, overwhelming because it was not uh, previously thought that we will have these challenges, mm. but we keep working in Cordillera Sur. So I guess stepping out a little bit, uh, what would you say the role that Red Plus has in the future of the carbon uh, voluntary carbon market? Because as we've said, there's been lots of criticism um, and people maybe prefer other types of projects, uh, other methodologies. But yeah, do you, I mean, it's, it's a double-edged question, really. What do you think of the role of Red Plus is in the voluntary carbon market? But also, what is the role of Red Plus in fighting climate change? Because it's the same question, right? Yeah. Well, sometimes it's hard to understand how you can uh, really protect forests or work in, in these types of projects. And to me, it has to be uh, coupled with other strategies for those buying the credits, the carbon credits. They, of course, have to reduce their emissions. They, of course, have to do better. But think on the other side on how we use the money and how we really stop deforestation, how we really benefit the people around the park and all of that. And so, for uh, for instance, the, law, the legislation that is still not uh, completely in place in Peru, but the government is also very much uh, into red projects and it, it's in the national law that uh, it will continue to to be there and Peru will allow more of these projects. So I hope that in the, in the context, in the international context at the moment, where there is so much criticism, where some of the buyers are retracting themselves because there are so many critics and... Uh, Maybe people have to understand that there is no perfect solution. It's as if you can read my notes, Lily, uh, because you keep uh, preempting my questions. Uh, but I was going to, I was going to take a little bit of a, a larger scale picture now and and talk about Peru, because uh, you know we at Abatable have recently released uh, an investment attractiveness index that uh, rates countries on how attractive they are from external investment. Peru scored very highly. Um, in fact, I think it was third. And so this shows that it is fostering an environment whereby, you know, projects can grow and investment can can come in, which is amazing. And is this what you are seeing as well? I mean, you've mentioned it already, but, uh, you know, with Article 6, um, coming into play. Uh, of course, no one quite knows how that will work. Um, but do you think there is a good opportunity for people to invest in, in Peru uh, from, from an external perspective? Well, let me tell you that I think that because there are several successful projects, red projects in Peru, that has also contributed to both. Like people are willing to invest in Peru and the government is ready to allow more projects. My question is, how is the government going to do with the NDC? Uh, it, this, this is the 
to me the difficult part we had a meeting with yeah, the government yeah. with the ministry a couple of weeks ago and i asked them and they were like um, hmm? <laughs> we are still thinking but yeah. um, in general i think that uh, peru will be okay uh there is a group of projects or all these uh, indigenous people are also mm. trying to establish their own uh, type of projects and i think that will be uh wonderful to also have this as they have a lot of uh, territories now I'm actually going to go back a little bit um, and you don't have to answer this question because it sounds like it was a, quite a personal experience. Um, but I'd actually love to hear a bit more about your your encounter um, with this indigenous community group and, and how it led you to actually some of the work that you've you've been doing. So I think that's that sounds quite important. And I, and I personally would love to hear a bit more about that if you're willing to uh, to talk about it. Yeah, well. This was my first field trip for my PhD dissertation. Mm. And uh, I was not aware of this uh, potential encounter with the uh, first encounter. This was people that have migrated from the area that Shell was doing exploration outside Manu National Park. Okay. They came into the park. And, well, this is a long story, but to make it short, they landed in the in the border of Cochacashu Biological Station where I was doing my research. Mm. And it was quite amazing. For me, this changed completely because I had been working before in the rainforest, but it changed me the idea of, of how the forest uh, contained also this population of indigenous people that mm. have a life like, uh, you know, the beginning of the history. And this made me understand that it's also difficult for government to have these uh, so different populations. They exist until now uh, in the border of Cordillera Sur too. And we have Lima, that is like any big city in the world. And so, so for me, when I went back to Paris, I wanted to study anthropology. And, and I started in 86 to start mm. a little bit of anthropology. Then I went back to biology. But um, yeah, it, this changed completely my way of thinking about the rainforest. And I have been working... 2009, 2009, uh, we with with the German cooperation, we wrote the, the first uh, project for for this um, funding they have on how to make a red project for the CIRA communal reserve, indigenous reserve. Okay. So I have been thinking a lot on indigenous people <laughs> because. Between 2005 and 2017, I was working for the German cooperation. I was not in mm -hmm. CIMI. And I, I have always been thinking on how to work better with indigenous people. 
No, thank you for sharing. That's uh, it's incredible, and I can um, I can only imagine uh, what that it, what that must have been like. And um, so I know that we're coming up to uh, near time now. Um, and so, you know, I think you know we're all in some way or another working in the same industry. And we're trying to you know yes. protect national parks. We're trying to protect forests. We're trying to fight climate change. Um, and of course, you know, all you have to do is turn the news on uh, or look outside sometimes and actually see that it's um, quite negative sometimes. But, you know, we all have to keep fighting. And, you know, what gives you the hope um, in this fight against climate change? And, and what gets, uh, I guess, what gets you out of bed in the morning and, and really uh, keeps you fighting? Well, to see all the people, my, my team working in the field with such an enthusiasm and little successes we have every day, every week, every month, mm. that keep us working. We know that it's not an easy path. We know that uh, I'm happy to see every day we, we are watching the satellite images and we see the forest. We hope mm. soon we will have an overflight and um, uh I think that it's it's such an opportunity for us to have this, and we hope that people in the wide uh, public understand what we are doing and what people are intending to do with the market. And I hope that uh, we can keep working in this type of projects and 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 stay. Uh, in in not only working in conservation but also in the sustainable development and all of that. Lily, thank you so much. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, you've had an in- incredible life, an incredible career, and to be honest, I could I could quite happily keep talking to you all day, uh, but I don't think you'd want that. Um, so yeah, really, just thank you so much. It's been incredibly insightful, and I really hope that. Uh, you know, a lot of people can and it can hear this and and realize that there is so much more to a project than just uh, its ID number. Um, so yeah, once again, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, hopefully I can uh, take you up on the offer to go to the the checkpoint at some point uh, in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you're interested in learning more about how you can support these projects, get in touch with us at hello at or visit our website, where you can also explore our market intelligence products to help users better understand the carbon markets. See you next time.